0: Sasha's about twenty years old, and what had happened to Sasha is uh, he was cliff diving and he dove into a river that was too shallow he broke his neck and was paralyzed from the chest down he had the ability to move his arms a little bit but they were not it wasn't coordinated he had no fine motor skills had a catheter had to wear a diaper the whole nine yards his life changed in a moment uh, and and he is uh, he was paralyzed um, and uh, When we met Sasha, he was um, angry and bitter. He saw no hope in the world. He wanted to commit suicide, uh, but no one would help him. He could not do that himself, uh, and no one was willing to help him. And he was just angry and bitter, wanted to die. Um, But there were people who literally dragged him to this camp uh, and then drug him all over the camp, carried him all over, Um, Four four folks, different folks every time. This is John and DeLon Bradley in the back. DeLon's part of our new church plant. A homeless guy in the front named Eset, and and another guy I can't even see. But they would carry him all over camp, um, and uh, he had friends who had drug him, like carried him to to get in a car to come to this camp, and then at this camp, people literally carrying him here to go hear the gospel preached all over camp. Um, and, and And this is not at all unlike the story that that Valerie just read a moment ago, where these friends are carrying the paralytic um to the feet of Jesus, friends that loved him enough to carry him all over the place right he had to have some sort of diaper he had to have some sort of i don 't know if he had, you know i don 't know if he had a catheter, but but those sort of things had to take place. Friends who loved him enough to do that, they carry him around and they carry him to the place that he needs to go the most, the feet of Jesus. But this story is not just about his friends, it's not just about even Jesus' authority over sickness and over disease and over nature and his ability to heal. It goes a whole lot deeper than that, Luke put this story in here, this historical event that happened in the life of Jesus, Luke included it in his gospel so that we might learn, yes, we are to bring our friends to Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. But also so that we might see Jesus for who he truly is, who he claims to be, so that we might believe in the real Jesus and also so that we might be amazed at the work of Jesus. And so those are the three things that we're going to talk about this morning. If you're taking notes, the way we're going to make our way through this text is, number one, bring your friends to Jesus. Number two, believe in the real Jesus. And number three, be amazed at the work of Jesus. So that's how we're going to make our way through this. So let's just jump into it and we will uh, get to work. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Look at it with me. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And so the setting here, Jesus is teaching in a home, all right? So it's community group, all right? And so there's community groups going on. It's probably at Peter's mother-in-law's house. Mark chapter 2 is a parallel account of this, probably at... Peter's mother-in-law's house. They're having a community group. Jesus shows up. That's a great community group, right? And then Pharisees and scribes show up. That's a bad community group, right? So the Pharisees and the scribes, they all show up. The house is full. People are crowding in. They're looking through the windows, trying to get in the door, standing room only. There's a line out the door. People want to hear what Jesus is saying. And it tells us here that there are Pharisees and teachers of the law, that's scribes, who are sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So you've got all of these people there, and they're there to hear him teach. Mark 2 calls it preach the word. And just kind of a an aside, it seems like every single week Luke's drawing our attention to the preaching ministry of Jesus, that that is the primary means by which The Gospel is communicated as a highlight, a primacy that Jesus puts on the public preaching of His Word. But again, you've got this room, and it's just chock full of these self-righteous religious folks. And they've come to see Jesus. They're suspicious about Him. They're kind of jealous of Him because everybody's interested in Him. They want to hear what He's talking about. They want to hear what He's saying. They want to see if there's a way they can discount Him. And so... They show up from every town, every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Now, we have already seen the Pharisees a few times. We've already seen the scribes a few times. And they are going to play like a, a role throughout the whole rest of the book. So I want to just kind of introduce you to them a little bit more. Explain who these guys are a little bit this morning. So I'm going to oversimplify, but basically you've got three major groups um, sex within Judaism at the time. You've got the scribes. These are the PhDs. They're the learned. Uh, the learned. They are the teachers of the law. They have gone to school. They've got you know degrees listed after their name. This that's who the scribes are. Teachers of the law. You've got another group that's called the Sadducees. These are the aristocratic uh, kind of rich kind of control the temple. Um, kind of control the high priest. The high priest is elected were selected from that group of people, the Sadducees. And then you've got the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the uneducated, middle class, um, uh, extreme legalists, extreme um, fundamentalists. And they started out, though, really well. They wanted to obey the Bible. Like, that was their goal. They wanted to obey, obey the Bible, but then they derailed and they started adding up all kinds of extra rules that go way beyond the Bible to keep them from even getting close to anything. So they become extremely legalistic. They become extremely fundamentalist. And Jesus is constantly going off on their smug self-righteousness and their anti-gospel of earning salvation through, through the way they live rather than through the, the, the person and work of Christ. And so if if we're going to bring them into today, these would be the guys who try to make it all about what you do and not what Jesus does. They would try to make it all about your performance and not the performance of Jesus on your cross. They'd try to make it all about living a perfect life instead of resting in the perfect life of Christ. That's who these guys are. All right. So you've got scribes, you've got Pharisees from every village of Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. They show up. They're at Peter's mothers in laws house. She's probably freaking out because... It's so crowded, but she's about to really freak out if this is her house. Because Look what happens. Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so one thing I just want you to highlight here and just kind of get the the paralytic's friends cannot get in, uh, cannot get their friend in to Jesus. Why? Right. Of who? Yeah, they they can't get him in there because there's a bunch of religious people in the way. Now, I'm just going to set that right there and leave that alone. Let you do with that what you want to do. But this hurting guy can't get to Jesus because of all the self-righteous religious people in the way. And so these guys, they have this obstacle and they get creative and so they take the stairs that are on the side of the house that go up to the roof. The stairs on these houses were very common during this time. So they get up to the roof and the roofs are made of wood beams that are crossed with branches and then they put clay and mud and grass on top and grass actually will grow on the tops of these houses in the summertime and so they're up there so just kind of get this picture again peter peter's mother-in-law's house and so these guys are up there and they start digging a hole through the roof so you've got debris falling in jesus trying to teach dust is falling in finally there's a hole and light cracks through and you've got the dust and these light beams and you know what that looks like when you see dust and the light beams and so this is going on Peter's mother-in-law is probably starting to freak out now because she's got a hole in her roof. And then finally, you start to see the sweaty, dirty faces of four guys. The hole gets bigger. Everyone's and then a, a shout of, look out below. And like a paralyzed SWAT guy, down he comes. Right to the feet of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christian friends do. They bring their friends to the feet of Jesus. They love their friends. They take care of their friends. They're there for their friends. They pour themselves out for their friends. All right? That's part of what we do as a church. We are for one another. We bear one another's burdens. You don't have to go. You don't have to go it alone. You don't have to pretend in here that you've got it all together. The fact that you're in here tells me you don't. So we don't have to pretend. We can stop pretending. We can bear one another's burdens. That's one of the reasons Jesus gave us the church. And so we're, we're there for one another. We're, we're family. We show compassion. But that compassion doesn't end with just care. That's where it starts. It extends to doing everything in your power to bring your friends to Jesus. They, they don't let obstacles get in their way. They don't let the religious people get in their way. They do everything they can to get, to, this, to get this guy to Jesus, including ripping a hole in the roof of the community group host's house. I'm not suggesting anyone ripping a hole in your community group's host's house. But be creative with an obstacle. They are willing to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus, and so the question then comes down to me and you: What are you willing to do to get your friend to Jesus? Have you have you even invited them to church? Like that is we talk about all that, that is the most low-hanging fruit, easy to do non-offensive? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to have awkward conversations that aren't really that awkward, we just think they are? Back in January, all the members of the church came down and put sticky notes on a red board that's outside these back two doors up on the wall. Do you guys remember when we did that? you remember who you wrote down that you were going to pray for and you were going to love and you were going to serve and you were going to Take intentional steps to help bring them to Jesus. What intentional steps have you done? If Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, what are we doing? And there's always going to be obstacles. But don't be derailed. All right, Be creative. Be persistent. Keep going. Find a way. Do everything that you can. Salvation is a work of God. You can't make somebody get saved. People can't be argued into the kingdom of heaven. They can be loved towards it, but they can't be argued into it. Salvation is a work of God. But what we want to do is we want to lay all the kindling we can and beg God to start it. So lay kindling. Do what you can to bring your friends to Jesus like these guys. So that's number one, bring your friends to Jesus. But number two, we need to believe in the real Jesus. We need to bring them to the real Jesus. We need to believe in the real Jesus. So look at verse 20 with me. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sons are forgiven and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speak, speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so number two, again, believe in the real Jesus. Like, Jesus is going to heal this guy in a minute. We've already read the whole thing. Valley read it for us just a minute ago. But first, before he does that, he drops a major bomb as it relates to who he really is. And so he he says, man, your son, your your sins are forgiven. That is a loaded statement, especially in the context of who he's in front of. I think about this for just a minute. Practically today, no other religious leader has ever claimed to be able to forgive sins. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Krishna. No one has ever claimed to be able to forgive sins. They they don't say your sins are forgiven. They say, here's a set of rituals to perform. Here's a set of steps to take. Here's a bunch of stuff you need to do in order to possibly pay God back and get reincarnated or get in good graces with Him. And if you do enough of that stuff, then maybe it'll all work out for you. They lay out a process. Jesus declares it. Boom! Forgiven authoritative. And so the scribes and the Pharisees are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are you to say that that sins are forgiven? God alone can do that. Psalm 51 says that it's against God alone that we have sinned. So who needs to uh, forgive us then? God. And so when Jesus says, I forgive you, your sins are forgiven, He's clearly saying, I'm God. And so they're, they're sitting there wondering, like, who are you to, to say this? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is silently, ding, 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 we have a winner. That's the point. That's who I am. I am God in the flesh. Verse 20 again. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Like, like for me, when, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, you would think they might reconsider some things. Yeah, hey, by the way, I know what you're thinking. This guy's not God. I know what you're thinking. Maybe you are. like that. Maybe that's the way I would have interpreted it, but these guys, no, 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 no. They still don't believe. So verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And so Jesus has made this claim of deity that that he is God. They don't believe him. And so then Jesus gives them a little proof. Like he knows, just like they do, that it's one thing to, to, to say something. It's something else to prove it. And so he just reasons with them. Hey, which one's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and rise and and go home? Which one's easier to say? Now, on the one hand, they're both easy to say because it's just words. But on a a second level, what, what he's talking about here is that it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see that. That can't be verified. There's not objective evidence. That's an invisible thing. And so it can't be verified. That's way easier to say. But if you say, rise, get up, and walk, and they don't, then it's obvious you are a pro-opposer. It's obvious you are a fraud. It's obvious you are a fake. So that's harder to say because it requires proof. And so Jesus has purposefully brought this situation to a put-up or shut-up moment. And Jesus puts up and heals the dude on the spot. And in the midst of healing him, makes another claim of deity. Verse 24, look at it again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Like this, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self designation. He refers to himself this way 81 times throughout the four Gospels. And it comes, it's a name that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Listen to this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus showed up stating, I am the Son of Man, there's no doubt what He's claiming. Matter of fact, this gets Him killed. When you look at Mark's account, chapter 14, verse 61, again, the high priest asked Him, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and asked, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And so here's the reality, folks. We need to believe in the real Jesus of Scripture, the real Jesus of history, not in some fake Jesus, some puppet Jesus, some Jesus that we've made in our image to fit what we want, to fit our desires. All right? Like John Piper puts it, people can have a great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the Jesus they're excited about is not the real biblical Jesus. It may be a morally exemplary Jesus, or a socialist Jesus, or a capitalist Jesus, a Republican Jesus, or a Democrat Jesus, a white racist Jesus, or a revolutionary liberationist Jesus, a countercultural cool Jesus, or a prosperity gospel Jesus, but not the whole Jesus who in the end gives his life as a ransom for sinners. And if your enthusiasm is for a Jesus that doesn't exist, Your enthusiasm is no honor to the real Jesus and you're worshiping a false Jesus. Just because people use the words Jesus doesn't mean they're talking about the true Jesus of the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses worship Jesus. Mormons worship Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible. And so there's all these fake Jesuses and even like just uh, different folks that might call them a church, but they've they've jettisoned the gospel and they've remade Jesus to say and think and do what they want him to say and think and do. So there's all these fake Jesuses and then there's the real Jesus Christ of the scriptures, the son of God and the son of man. As Kevin DeYoung puts it, He's not just another prophet. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just another wonder worker. He's the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He's the one to deliver us from captivity. The goal of the Mosaic law. Yahweh in the flesh. The one to establish God's reign and rule. The one to heal the sick. Give sight to the blind. Freedom to the prisoners. And proclaim good news to the poor. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of of the world he's the creator come to earth fulfilling the promises reversing the curse he's our lord and our god he's the father's son he's the second person of the trinity he's the savior of the world he's the substitute for our sins he died on a cross on friday he walked out of the grave on sunday he proved all this momentarily by healing this man, and he proved it for all eternity by walking out of the grave. That's the real Jesus that we are called to believe in. Not a made-up version. He can't be a good teacher. Good teachers don't claim to be God. That makes you a bad teacher. So he can only be one of three things. C.S. Lewis is famous, pointed this out. He's either a liar, knew he was lying, knew it the whole time, just lied, lied, lied. I don't know that I wouldn't recant when I'm being beaten like that. So he could be a liar, he could be a lunatic, he could be crazy. He thought he was all this, but he was just truly insane. So he could be a liar, he could be a lunatic, or he could be Lord. He could be who he says he is. He can't be a good teacher. So number one, we are called to bring our friends to Jesus. And number two, we are called to believe in the real Jesus. Not someone we've made in our image to fit our values and fit what we think. Jesus. Says who he is. We don't redefine. Bring your friends to Jesus, believe in the real Jesus, and then number three, be amazed at the work of Jesus. Look at verse 26. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Like when you, when you get who Jesus is, all this that we just stated, and you get what he does, you can't help but be amazed. You can't help but go away glorifying him. You can't help but be seized with amazement and awe because you have seen extraordinary things. I mean, Jesus, we talked about it a little bit last year, cleanses lepers. Okay, He heals the sick. He forgives sinners. And so, kind of the paralytic here, like even as Jesus is making this point, this big point about who he is, and he's claiming deity, he's making this big point. I don't think Jesus was just using this guy as an opportunity to make this pronouncement. He capitalizes on it, but I don't think he is just using this guy. I think there's something that's going on personally deeper that moves Jesus to eternally forgive his sins before he temporally heals him. Because the paralytic, the Bible does not tell us how he became paralyzed. The Bible does not tell us if he was born that way, like the man born blind in John 9. It doesn't tell us that. It also doesn't tell us if he had an accident, just some freak accident that happened. Or if he in the midst of, of sin did something that resulted in his paralysis. Like he got so drunk he fell off a house. Or he, you know, got he 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 OD'd on, on something. Or he got, you know, some super form of an S T D or something else that left him paralyzed because of his sin. Scripture doesn't say. But based upon the fact that Jesus tells him your sins are forgiven before he heals him, it seems that's a key word. That this is my this is my opinion here. This it seems, scripture's not clear, it doesn't tell us on this. It seems as if it's that last one, based upon the fact that Jesus forgives his sins before healing. him. It seems as if it's that last one. That that he wasn't born this way, like My Eden was born with a disability. But rather, he had done something, like it happened. He did it to himself. He sinned in some way, the consequences of which resulted in awful circumstances. And that's like some of us in here. We've done stuff in our lives that has wrecked our lives. In varying degrees. And there's damage and there's destruction all around us. And inside of us. And it's our fault. It's your fault personally. It's my fault personally. We did it. And we've wrecked our lives or portions of it. That seems to be this guy. And what does Jesus say to him? Man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Like, feel the depth of that. Like, for all your spiritual uncleanness, like an outcast, untouchable, shunned leper and we talked about last week, Jesus touches you and cleanses you. And for all your guilt and regret and shame and pain that you carry around with you by the truckload because of what you've done, it's your fault. Jesus forgives you. He cleanses you. Including sin that's been done to you that makes us feel unclean, though we had no fault of our own, but something's been done to us that makes us feel unclean. Friend, If that's you, you're not unclean. You're not. Jesus loves you. Jesus cleanses you. Jesus gives you a new identity. You are not what you do. You are not what you did. All right. You, who you are is you are a son or a daughter of the king is good news. Jesus cleanses. Jesus forgives on the basis of what He's done. His perfect life in the place of your imperfect one. His undeserved death for uh, sin. Undeserved punishment for sin in the place of your deserved punishment for sin. And His victorious glorious resurrection over sin and death that becomes your victory. Over sin and death. This is the gospel. This is the good news. In Jesus Christ. In him. Outside of him, no. In him, you are forgiven. Of everything. Every ounce. There's not a drop left to be paid. Not a drop. Good news. The, the, the Colossians 2.14 record of debt, gone. And not just gone and we have a blank slate now before God, but rather Christ gives us his very own righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21, for God made him being Jesus who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a change. It is a transaction that has taken place. This is what Jesus does. He forgives sin, and there's no process to follow. There's no ridiculous set of steps to to go through to try to make God love you. That's an impossibility. Anyhow, the gap between His holiness and our sinfulness is, is too great. It cannot be spanned, if that's a word. We cannot get there. So He came to us. We have to have our sins taken away and we need the righteousness of another credited to us. And that's what Jesus does for everyone who will believe. Like the paralytic was let down through the roof, but this good news, is good news that should send our joy and our thankfulness through the roof. Our gratitude through the roof. Amazement sees them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. May we be seized with amazement and awe. Because in Christ, you have seen and been given extraordinary things. Be amazed at the work of God. Father, may the gospel message never get old to us. May we run to its truth daily for forgiveness. This is not just a one-time thing that happened, Lord, but it is my forgiveness for my sins this week are on the basis of what Jesus has done for me. So i run to You. Help me. Forgive me, God. Let us be amazed. Filled with awe. Seized with amazement. And go home glorifying You. We have seen and experienced all who are in Christ Extraordinary thing.